Hello everyone and welcome back to Danger on Delmarva, a podcast that explores the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula, an area in the mid-Atlantic region that encompasses Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson and I'll be your host to take you down the sometimes imposing paths that wind around Delmarva. Delmarva is our little piece of heaven that has beautiful beaches and of course tax-free shopping. But before I begin this story, I do want to say that this podcast reflects my personal interest in the exploration of how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I mean no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the episode. I have obtained facts for this information through publicly available sources. In some cases, personal observations about the area may be discussed, and this podcast is produced for informational purposes. As I've gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee everything involving accuracy, completeness, or validity. I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation, and time delays. Example, that there are further updates after the publication of the podcast. As a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various instances. Also, I did come across this case from a YouTube video done by Bailey Sarian. As I began my research on this, I also found an episode done by Glabulosis. As always, I've linked all of my sources in the description, including links to the two videos. And much of the source material comes from the same articles on on this case. As this podcast has begun to grow and evolve, and by the way, if you do want to help that growth along, please feel free to share the links to this episode or any other episode if you'd like. Um, But I have found that there are a few areas that we can focus on as kind of subcategories. The show has already evolved slightly from just focusing on Delaware to expanding to other parts of Delmarva. Though admittedly, I do find it a little bit harder to find information for other parts of Delmarva, such as Virginia and the Eastern Shore of Maryland. I think a lot of that is because I'm more intimately acquainted to some of the events or the areas where these events have happened in Delaware as compared to other parts of the shore. So also here, if anybody wants to make any suggestions, please feel free to do so, my contact information will be in the description of the podcast notes. And I know that when I'm looking for an episode to watch um, or listen to, whether it be a podcast or a video, I like it when there's a nice description in the title to at least give me an idea of what the episode is going to be about. As I've done research, um, read different articles, or just tried to find you know, different events that I could report on or do an episode on, I have found that some events may actually start in Delaware, but actually end in another part of the country or the opposite. So if I do have an episode where it involves multiple states, I will label it as a distant danger episode. But another subcategory I found are older cases, and I find older cases utterly intriguing. Whether it's some type of disaster, natural or man-made, or a crime, I just find how investigators did things in a different time and still be able to come up with a conclusion to be fascinating. So on these types of episodes, I will use the term dated danger and that will appear in the title description. And of course, in this sense, dated means age-wise, not romantic, even though in some cases it could actually mean both. So 
what happens when these two types of cases may actually come together to create one intriguing twisting episode? I guess that would be a distant and dated danger episode, if you will. So everybody sit back, relax, or if you're like me, continue cooking or baking or doing anything else that you can think of while listening to a podcast and prepare for yet another first that happened in the tiny first state of Delaware. The term turn of the century can mean different things to different people. When I hear that, I think of the term as going from the 19th century into the 20th. However, as we're now in the year 2021, to many people that term also represents going from the 20th to the 21st century. Now granted, that does make me feel just a little older than I want to feel, but you know, today I will be talking about the first turn of the century that comes to mind to me. The first turn of the century that I recall hearing about, which is starting in the late 1800s and going into the early 1900s. So by this time, America had expanded out west and it was no longer considered a wild frontier. I think that when people look back at this time, again the late 1800s to the early 1900s, people may think of this idyllic time but also still think of a time where the West was wild and don't really put these two conflicting notions together. But the West, in many ways, was being tamed. And that idyllic time where men were truly gentlemen and the genteel ladies walked along the street with parasols to protect their delicate skin from the sun and where they spent their idle time doing cross-stitch all day. And yet these same people lived with secrets that made them put on a mask in public to hide how they really felt, how sometimes they felt stifled and downtrodden and didn't really have a way out. So was this truly an idyllic time when these same women didn't have a right to vote? When there were just social injustices that were running rampant throughout not only America, but much of the world, and whether or not we want to face it, still does. Well, we can see that a lot of these notions are conflicting, wild but tame, moral yet hypocritical. So just as we may think that we're living in a time so advanced that there can never be another time period like now, those at the former turn of the century probably thought the same thing as the expansion across the country had reached its westernmost point and those cities were flourishing. They no longer had to travel by coach or horse and buggy from one end of the country to the other. There were trains that would allow relaxation and rest while you let others do the driving. And these travel advancements allowed for the three main players in the events that occurred at the turn of the century to actually take place. So let's learn a little bit about these pe people. There will be three that are the primary people in this event. So this can get a little confusing. Um, there are, of course, different timelines for different players of this crime, and we would definitely expect that, but eventually they all do come together and those timelines become intertwined. So first, really the driving force behind this whole case, John Dunning. I guess we could really describe Dunning as a kind of journalistic rock star of his day, if his day actually had rock stars. But as a journalist, he dashed off to parts of the world that most of his readers could only dream about. He was in a position to regale his readers with action that they otherwise would not have known about in such detail. He rose to fame when he had been in Samoa in 1889. There was a little bit of unfriendly rivalry going on between the naval forces of the US, Great Britain, and Imperial Germany, all over who was to be in line to be the new monarch of Samoa. This was kind of like a dispute in the line of succession, 
and war could have actually broken out over the dispute, but before that could happen, Mother Nature decided to jump in and declare herself the winner. Most of the German and American fleets had been destroyed by a typhoon, and the HMS Calliope from Great Britain was able to limp out to sea and survive. Dunning was there to report the whole thing, and his coverage landed him many accolades. So the next person up is Mary Elizabeth Pennington. Though frankly, we don't really have too much information on her early life, though she probably had things a lot more comfortable than many of her peers in Dover, Delaware. Mary Elizabeth was the daughter of a very influential man, former Attorney General, and former Congressman General John Pennington. She was prim and proper, with religion being a very important part of her life. And finally, there's Cordelia Botkin. Yes, Cordelia. She was born in Missouri in 1854, and at the tender age of 18, married Welcome Botkin, age 33. And just so we can be clear, his first name was Welcome. Um, I did read one headline while trying to research this, and I really couldn't make sense of that headline until I saw his name mentioned in another article, and with the W and welcome being uppercase, I finally realized that was actually his name. But Welcome Botkin was affiliated with the Missouri Valley Bank in Kansas City. Cordelia and Welcome had a son named Beverly, and eventually Welcome became a grain broker and was very comfortable financially. They eventually moved to California. Their marriage was, shall we say, unconventional, but in some ways, a lot of people lived like this in those days. It may even be considered progressive for its time, but she and Welcome lived their lives separately. Welcome lived in Stockton and had a mistress of his own. And while he lived there, Cordelia lived in San Francisco. He did pay Cordelia a monthly allowance to help support her, and he would come to visit her that one time a month and give her that allowance, but also meet with his mistress at the time. So nobody was really hiding their indiscretions that well. The women in Cordelia's neighborhood knew her very well. She would brag to anyone who would listen that she had pictures taken of her over a hundred times. In today's age, that's really no big deal. But at that time, photography was time consuming and expensive. So to have pictures done, especially that many, it really showed that she was supposed to be alluring. But she infamously dallied in activities that no virtuous woman in a good standing at that time would ever do. She would drink, and she would gamble with men in her neighborhood. Cordelia was known to be, well, she didn't really abide by social conventions of the time. She was a free spirit, to say the least. So how do these divergent lives, beginning in different parts of the country and ending up in California, connect? John Dunning met Mary Elizabeth Pennington, and in February of 1891, they married. He became the bureau chief of the San Francisco Associated Press, or AP, office, and he and his wife set off to the west. So a little later in 1891, he moved to California, specifically San Francisco, with his wife, and they welcomed their only child, a daughter, about a year later. Her name was also Mary. So I will primarily be referring to Mary Elizabeth, the wife, during this episode. So if I were to use the term or name just Mary, that would mean I'm referring to the daughter. Now John Dunning must have been a ladies man, even though the descriptions of him were not really that flattering at times. But you know, even without the term rock star in that era, he was really living the rock star life. And the first thing many of us think about when we think about the rock star life would be women swooning all over him. And so, yes, 
He had women swooning all over him as he told them about his tales of adventure. Now, Cordelia happened to meet Dunning in 1895. John saw Cordelia while he was riding his bike in the park. It broke down near a tree where Mrs. Botkin was soaking in the glory of the day. Botkin was about nine years older than Dunning, but she did have this charisma, this draw that made Dunning and actually other men want to latch on to her. As I said before, Cordelia was this social butterfly and she actually ended up introducing John to areas of the big city that he really didn't know about. Areas of the city where Mary Elizabeth wouldn't even dream of going. And while maybe discretion might have been used a little bit at the beginning of the affair, it did not last, not at all. Soon, Cordelia and John Dunning were inseparable, but Dunning began to drink heavily. He started to gamble, and he gambled away boatloads of money. And eventually, he lost his job, both due to his drinking, hence unreliability, as well as stealing money to pay for gambling debts. He stole $4,000. That would be over $120,000 in today's money. So at this point, really, he's lucky he just lost his job. So as we can see, the mighty were falling. Now, Mary Elizabeth decided that she was not going to take him cheating on her, and she left, taking their daughter back to Delaware with her. She was embarrassed, humiliated, because the whole neighborhood knew that her husband was having an affair. They knew he was drinking, and she was not going to put up with it. Now, as time passed, John began to suffer even more financially. He lost his home, and... Cordelia had also moved from her home into a hotel, the Victoria Hotel. So Dunning actually moved into that very same hotel, basically living off Welcome Botkin's dime. So even though by this point their affair was the most open secret in San Francisco, it would have provided a perfect cover. They just happened to live in the same hotel and each had a different room. So... Dunning and Cordelia were close, and even though they were still technically married, they were together. Now, Dunning would discuss his wife, reminiscing about the times that they had together, how she loved to eat her chocolates that she could find in San Francisco, and how she used to spend time with her friend, Mrs. Corbelli, while living in California. Now, these may seem like odd things to bring up, but for some reason he did. I'd like to think that maybe he was just showing his hand that he was missing the life that he had lived with his family, and he was regretting some of the decisions that he had made. But Dunning and Cordelia's affair was not short-lived. It lasted at least three years. But in March of 1898, it seemed that things were looking up for Dunning. All may have been forgiven with the AP, and he was offered a job. A new assignment was on deck for him, which involved the Spanish-American War. He was to go to Cuba and Puerto Rico to help cover the Spanish-American War. And this allowed John Dunning the opportunity to leave California to start fresh in a sense. So he informed Cordelia that he was not going to come back to San Francisco and he was not going to come back to her. She was upset, distraught, and even knowing that he was not going to return to her, she followed him to the ship as he set off for his assignment, crying the whole time. Now, as John was on assignment, Cordelia stewed. She knew what reason John would have not to return to her. She knew it had to be his wife, that he was going to reconcile with her, and that is truly what he was planning to do. Again, I hope to think that he had learned the error of his ways and that he was ready to settle down and he realized what a strong and good person Mary was and that he was losing his daughter too. He needed to work to recapture that trust that they once had in him and it sounded like he was willing to put in the work. 
but Cordelia could not stand the thought of him going back to Mary and his daughter. And as the saying goes, if I can't have you, nobody will. And you know, it doesn't matter to her that she was married, or that he was married, or that anyone was married, because the only one seemingly taking their vows seriously was Mary Elizabeth. But Cordelia let a plot start to form, a plot to get all the obstacles out of the way and ensure that Dunning would come back to her, that even if he went back to Mary Elizabeth, she would not take him back. Cordelia sent a letter to Mary, Mary Elizabeth, I'm sorry, in which she embellished the characteristics of Dunning's mistress, singing the praises of this mistress, which means she was trying to rub salt in the wounds that Mary Elizabeth had. The letters suggested that she should not take Dunning back, even if he tried to work his way back into her good graces. And she signed the letters, a friend. Mary Elizabeth kept these letters. With Cordelia's next actions, we have to remember that she did not have access to information about forensics or investigative tools, how crime scenes work, or as it seems, sometimes just basic common sense. And while the investigators at that time really were limited in their forensics, she did not give them enough credit, I don't believe. So there were a few things that Cordelia needed to do to set her plan in motion. She visited a candy shop or a chocolatier, ordering bonbons, remembering how much Mary Elizabeth loved her chocolates. But she did ask that the bonbons not be placed all the way to the top, that she wanted a little extra space in there. She also asked that the box not show the name of the store. Next, she went to a department store called the City of Paris, and she bought a handkerchief. Now, the City of Paris really was kind of like the Saks Fifth Avenue of their day in San Francisco. Then she visited a chemist, or as we would say, a pharmacy, that was Al Drugstore. That's Al, O-W-L, Drugstore, and she bought some arsenic. Now, the chemist was curious as to why she needed such a harsh substance, and she said she needed it to clean a straw hat. Now, even when he informed her that there were other ways to accomplish this, she insisted on the arsenic. Somewhere along the line, she ran into a female friend and had a conversation. Um, she asked if she knew how poisons affected the body and if she had to sign for registered mail. You know, very interesting questions. I have a feeling that if someone asked those questions today, someone might be making a call to the police, or hopefully they would. But finally, she did make it to the post office where she sent the package on its way to Delaware. Though I did not have the exact order of events listed in an article, all of these events did have to take place in order to achieve her diabolical goal. So on August 9th, 1898, Mary Elizabeth Pennington Dunning received a box of chocolates with a handkerchief and a note that read, with love to yourself and baby, Mrs. C. She most likely thought that Mrs. Corbailey, her friend from San Francisco, was thinking of her and sent her some sweets. So after dinner that night, she and her family retired to the porch. This was her father, her sister, her sister's children, and she passed around her box of chocolates, but her father declined. There were also some people in the neighborhood who did happen to pass by, and Mary Elizabeth was more than willing to share some candy with them. So it wasn't too long, though, before many of the people started to feel sick, including Mary Elizabeth and her sister, Leela Dean. Some people recovered but the doctor said it was most likely food poisoning from the corn fritters they had earlier that night for supper. But John Pennington, remember he's the father, the former attorney general and congressman, he did not get where he was in life just by rolling over when he thought something was wrong. He had also eaten those corn fritters, but he was not sick. And while others who had eaten the chocolates recovered, 
his daughters, Mary Elizabeth and Leela Dean, continued to suffer, feeling agonizing pain to their stomachs, having the life forced out of them. Mary Elizabeth and Leela Dean both passed away. John Dunning had lost his wife and sister-in-law. Pennington had lost his two daughters. And little Mary Dunning lost her mother and aunt. John Pennington contacted other doctors. He knew that this could not have been food poisoning. The others had recovered, but the candy was the only common denominator. Some who ate the candy ate less, or they ate the harder pieces of chocolate and they were spared. Pennington sent for his son-in-law, letting him know that Mary Elizabeth had died. Pennington also knew about the letters that Mary Elizabeth had received, and once he had these letters in his possession, he could have the handwriting compared. When Dunning did arrive back from Puerto Rico, he recognized the writing, Cordelia Botkin. The Dover, Delaware police contacted their counterparts in San Francisco and investigators even took their evidence by hand across the country to California. And remember, even though the trains made things more convenient, this was not something that just took less than a day like it would be now to fly from one part of the country to another. They had to go by train. And San Francisco did treat this case with priority. Chief I.W. Lees headed the investigation. And just a little random fact, thank you Jim Fisher and Bailey Sarian for pointing this out, Lees was the first person to use photography of criminals taken after arrests. He really was the first one to make use of what we now know as the mugshot. So I can say this was probably one picture that Cordelia did not want taken. The investigators tracked down everyone who could provide evidence, though this evidence was mostly circumstantial. The clerk at Haas Candy Store was located. She ID'd Cordelia because it was not often that people asked to have the box left a little empty. I mean, you know, someone's going to buy chocolates, they want it filled up. You know, this was not a time where someone could just walk into any store and buy a candy bar. This was a luxury. Now the clerk at the city of Paris department store recognized her because she said that Cordelia looked just like her mother who had passed away. And upon providing a picture of her mother, the resemblance was uncanny. The chemist also remembered her because, well, she bought arsenic to clean a hat. And the post office clerk, his name was John Dunnigan and he remembered her because the name on the package was so close to his own, with the package being addressed to Mrs. John Dunning. Handwriting examiners agreed that the letters were, were written by Cordelia, and after obtaining a warrant, Lees and the San Francisco PD searched Cordelia's room at the Victoria Hotel and found remnants of the chocolate packaging. So this was not a case of she did not bother to cover her tracks. This was a case of leaving little chocolate crumbs to follow her by. So yes, there was enough evidence now to charge Cordelia. She was found at her sister's house and things must have been a little different back then. The police told her that she could pack her things to come with them. So she packed a trunk so heavily laden that it took two officers to carry. You know, not that I ever plan on getting arrested, but I can imagine the look on the officer's face when I asked for them to give me a moment while I dig out a suitcase or two and pack. I really don't think that would go over well. So this case was the first murder by mail case. It was also the first time that crimes took place in different jurisdictions of the U.S where they were to be tried. And just a side note, I find this a little hard to believe that this hadn't happened before by the end of the 1900s. I'm sorry, the end of the 1800s. But I'm wondering if 
you know, back then, if something took place in one county, but a part of the crime was done in another county, if the jurisdictions just kind of worked things out amongst themselves. But in this case, there were two very distinct jurisdictions. There was a different city, county, and state, and it was about as far as you can get from one part of the country to the other. I can just imagine, too, that Delaware wanted the case because of John Pennington's influence. But California won out with the argument that Cordelia could not be charged in a place that she had never been. Also, something interesting in this case was the use of handwriting examination as evidence. Handwriting and document investigation was really not used that much at this time. I would not even say that it was in its infancy. It was prior to that. It was not recognized truly as a form of science. But in this case, there were three experts who examined the documents to see if the handwriting on the sent letters, on the letter that came with the candy, and a sample of Cordelia's handwriting matched. Now having this testimony in such a high profile case really vaulted this science into the mainstream. One of the handwriting examiners was Daniel Ames and he eventually wrote Ames on Forgery, its detection and illustrations in 1900, so not too long after this case actually took place. So while the evidence was circumstantial, there was a lot of it. Proceedings really the, were the most exciting thing that was happening in San Francisco at this time. And the public gathered outside the courthouse each day. I kind of equated it with like Real Housewives of San Francisco, extremely old school edition. The prosecution witnesses were amazing in this case though. John Dunning seemed to have even grown a stronger backbone and refused to name some of the other women that he had been with. The defense was going to try to use this as a way to bring in other possible suspects. Dunning even spent some time in jail, probably not more than a night, um, but this was because he would not provide the names of any of these women. And this truly does make me think that John had learned from his rowdy and rambunctious days and he did what was right, refusing to ruin the lives of these other women with these accusations. The defense had no choice but to put Cordelia on the stand. They wanted her to be this cheery, intelligent, refined person. Now, things really didn't work out great, but she did bring up a good point. The arsenic that was used in the chocolate was crystalline, but she bought the powdered version. This was never really addressed though in any of um, the articles that I read. I almost wonder if I wasn't giving her enough credit earlier and maybe she did buy arsenic from another place and she was planning on using this one little tidbit of information to try to get off if she were to be caught. But the trial and the deliberations were coming to an end, and people were packing the street in front of the courthouse. They were straining to hear updates as they came, not being able to wait for the newspaper to come out. By the time the newspaper would have come out, well, everything would have just been old news. Well, it would have been newer than it is now, but you know what I mean. The examiner, a paper, came up with a brilliant idea for the day to keep the public informed. Reporters were to run back and forth from the courtroom to provide updates, posting these on a huge bulletin board that would allow everyone to see. Now, I would have loved to see a picture of this. It didn't say if chalk was used or how they were able to achieve writing that was so large that everybody could see it, as well as being able to update that information on a regular basis. So the jury did meet, and in four hours, they found her guilty, recommending life in prison. It was actually said that most of this time had been spent discussing the sentence recommendation, not the actual verdict. The handwriting evidence really was a strong point in this case. So here ends the story of a stocky yet voluptuous 
of a scandalous but still outgoing woman who was to live out the rest of her life in the San Francisco County Jail. Oh, but no, no, this is not over. Somehow, Cordelia had this stronghold over men. She lived a comfortable life in jail, had pillows, you know, things that other prisoners did not have. Eventually, her trial was overturned due to a technicality. Another case had recently been overturned due to the way, way that the directions were given to the jury. And as the same type of instruction was given to Cordelia's jury, her verdict was overturned as well. And beyond this tiny little technicality, she was still managing to live the high life still in jail. She had begun some, shall we say, relationships with some of the guards, and they actually allowed her out, usually at night, just so she could walk, get some fresh air. But one evening, Judge Cook saw her walking about, and of course he wanted an investigation. He knew that Cordelia was supposed to be in jail. But, not to be outdone, Cordelia and her attorney tried to use this to their advantage, saying that this look-alike must have been the real killer, and poor Cordelia was stuck in jail all of this time for something that she really didn't do. But all of this was to come out in the end. She was found guilty again, and her life of comfort while in the San Francisco jail came to an end as well with the earthquake of 1906. The jail itself was destroyed and she was moved to San Quentin. Originally, the judge had not wanted to send her there as he feared for her safety, but this was what it was. The jail was destroyed and she had to go to San Quentin. Now also, unfortunately, many of the original court documents were destroyed during this time as well. So after the verdict, life was not easy for anyone. John Pennington had lost two of his daughters, even though he did have his grandchildren to love. Leela Dean's children lost her mother. Mary was left without a mother. And while she still did have a father, I believe he was probably racked with guilt, knowing that if he had never gotten involved with Cordelia Botkin, none of this would have happened. Welcome Botkin divorced Cordelia. In that time, it was permissible to divorce someone if they were charged with a felony. And I'm pretty sure that murder is a felony. But he did end up dying of heart failure with their son Beverly following just one year later. Cordelia's own father passed away and even John Dunning died all before she passed away in March of 1910. They said that she was suffering depression during that time and the cause of death was softening of the brain due to melancholia. So what are some things that we can take away from this case? Well, you know, for one thing, we can see that society does not look at divorce in the same way as it was at the time of this story. So some of the hurdles would not have needed to be jumped through if this was taking place today. Even though this was over a century ago, we can see that there are just as many similarities as there are differences. Today, things may have moved faster because of email or social media, sometimes quicker mail times, even though honestly, in this case, it seems like the package made its way from California to Delaware pretty quickly. Also, social conventions were different, and while probably no one thinks of a divorce in completely positive terms, many people today understand that sometimes a divorce is better for the parties involved to avoid any further animosity. In the late 19th century, divorce was not common, and people really just had to learn to live with their situation. So, Cordelia and Welcome. John and Mary Elizabeth went through their life tied together by a piece of paper that says that they are still married. And I am in no way trying to demean or diminish the importance of marriage and the vows that we take when we do get married. But what I am saying is that we do now recognize that sometimes divorce is the better option rather than 
staying together with someone that you're no longer compatible with. So I do find it interesting that even though we do now live in this time where it's easier to get a divorce, some people still do turn to crime to get what they want, such as getting rid of their spouse. But in this case, really, would it have worked? I don't think so. I don't think that Dunning would have gone running back to Cordelia when his wife had died, even if Cordelia had not been caught. I think that he would have reflected on the life that he had missed out on and tried to change so that he wouldn't fall back into the proverbial den of iniquity. And Cordelia, she was really such an enigma in this case. On the one hand, she exuded this confidence, and this confidence made men bend to her will, though every description of her said something like she was stocky or she was stodgy. And so while she did have this confidence that just seemed to ooze from her, she also, in my opinion, suffered from a severe lack of self-esteem during the affair. The letters that she sent to Mary describing herself in glowing terms, I feel, was just her living her life through those letters. That was the life that she dreamed of. And these letters were also to serve to drive a wedge between Mary Elizabeth and Dunning. And I would really like to know more about Cordelia's younger life. I would like to know how she met Welcome and how an 18-year-old came to be married to a man that was almost twice her age, and to find out if she married out of love, necessity, or expectations. And if I could go back and ask the jury a question, I would. You know, just staying out of the political realm of the current day, at the time of this case, The death penalty was imposed, uh, I guess I'd say often, in cases of murder. So the jury indicated also that they spent most of the time deliberating over the sentence, more so than the actual guilt or innocence, the verdict. So my question would be, Cordelia sent the box of chocolates, not knowing who may eat any of them not knowing if her dear John's daughter would also have a piece, or any number of people could also have had one, as was the case here. Two out of a possible six or seven people died who had eaten a piece of candy. Did anyone in the jury consider that Cordelia had absolutely no concern for anyone, disregarding the fact that instead of two innocent sisters dying, it could have very easily been a whole street or neighborhood left in mourning. That's just the one thing that really struck me beyond everything else is that Cordelia had absolutely no concern for anyone else. And in the case of possibly little Mary eating it, maybe that would have worked into her plan as well because what would Dunning have had to go back to if both his wife and daughter had died? So again, that's just really one of the biggest questions that I have. As I look at the aspects of this case, I have to ask myself, what's changed since 1898? Cordelia was engaging in really what was an early form of what we now call catfishing, you know, sending correspondence claiming to be one person, a friend, um, maybe not catfishing in some of the same ways that we think of it, but pretty darn close. You know, if this was to take place today, you know, like I said earlier, it could be like the Real Housewives of San Francisco. And while I did not find this mentioned, I wonder if some of the newspapers used who John Dunning was to their advantage. You know how sometimes on a reality show, it's where the you know producers take one celebrity and they build a whole show around them, making all of those around them celebrities. You know, so we had John, who was a renowned journalist who had fallen down on a well-traveled path that led to his destruction. And while he may not have been a household name, 
If somebody saw a headline that read, famed journalist's lover kills wife in Delaware while in California, not only would the confusing headline draw people's attention and curiosity, so would that word famed. How many times can we be browsing through something and see one famous name or even just something that indicates someone might be famous and we click on that article? I mean, not to name names, but thinking about 20 or so years ago, um, you know, there was a certain family, they were barely known, but then one day the daughter is caught on a kind of explicit tape. And then there's also a link to a famous trial that had taken place, a link to a former Olympian. And before you know it, everybody in the family is famous. Their friends are famous. Just their pets are even famous. You know, so you know, thought of someone famous doing something dangerous or scandalous always draws people in. And now have people learned to be honest in their relationships to be themselves or you know when someone does realize what they need do they try to rectify their mistakes or will the past come back and rear its powerful and destructive head and are these things that we can actually change you know what can be done to try to prevent tragedies like this from happening again but it seems like these stories never end. I'm sure probably that if we were to somehow find information about, you know, couples 1500 years ago, we would find that people cheated on their partners. We can actually see that in some of the history texts. You know, we think of Cleopatra, you know, one of the most infamous scandals of the day. So things like this will always be there. There's human nature and we don't have a way to 100% predict human nature. So if this earth lasts 1500 years from now, we will probably still see partners cheating on each other. And part of the issue is that we cannot look at each relationship as a one size fits all approach. You know, what may be good for one marriage may not fit another marriage. You know, I look at some relationships and I know some people where they work with their spouses all day long, then they come home and they're with them all evening, all night, and they love it. I personally could not do that. I need my time apart. My husband needs time apart from me. And if we spent too much time together, we would really start to know what the other was thinking by the scowl on our face and realize it was time for one of us to just get out of Dodge for a couple of hours. And as all aspects of a relationship are looked at, there can be dozens of tiny differences between the types of relationships, between the individuals within that relationship. So there's really no good answer to say, if we apply all of these ideas and concepts, no one will ever get murdered because of a love triangle or a rectangle, or even a pentagon if we welcome, welcome Botkin's mistress into this whole geometry class. Was the time period where this case took place too restrictive by not allowing people to dissolve a marriage and move on with their lives if it didn't work out? Or is today too permissive? But we still have this happening, so either way, Affairs happen. Murder happens because of those affairs. And it seems like the old saying is holding true. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Everyone, I'd like to thank you for hanging in there on a longer episode. I do find this case rather intriguing. You know, it's really interesting to just know that a little over a century ago that you know all of this took place how i know when i look at that time period there's just a lot of conflict in my mind of it was a simpler time but it was sometimes more complex it was supposed to be a more refined time but we can see that it wasn't always that way 
So it's just a very interesting time period where things were changing, people were changing, their views on things were changing, and you have this whole new revolution with transportation. Um, you know, not too long after that, you have flight coming into play. So, you know, I'm just kind of a history buff too. So this was just a really good story for me to kind of dive into um, and really to see how some of the things have stayed the same, even though we're 120 years on from this. And I really wish that I could say, you know what, this is what we need in order to not have things like this happen again. But there really is no clear cut answer as long as humans are humans and we all have feelings and idiosyncrasies and events in our life that have impacted how we see life, have impacted our belief system. You know, we're never gonna be able to predict 100%. And that's why it would be really interesting to know what Cordelia's early life was about. And I hope everybody enjoyed this story. Um, I know we did delve off of the Eastern Shore for a little while there, but the actual murder did occur in Delaware. It, depending on how one looks at it, the murder happened in Delaware. But, you know, again, I just found this to be a very, very interesting and unique case. So, you know, again, if anybody likes this content, please feel free to you know, share with friends, family, anyone that you think might like, you know, just, I don't want to use the term true crime, but, you know, um, tragedies, so we can try to learn from them. Please feel free to share so that, you know, we can help the podcast grow. Um, also, if you, you know, have a podcatcher where you can leave a review or a rating, that helps bring up the um, podcast in the algorithm so that people can find it easier. So um, I hope everyone has a great rest of the week. If there are a lot of interesting things that happen between now and next week, I will put up a mini-sode. If not, um, I will be publishing my next episode two weeks from now, um, which would be the first week of September. and. Um, I'll probably do more of a natural disaster or an engineering disaster um, for that. I have a couple of ideas, so that's what we'll be looking at with the next episode, and talk to you then. Bye.